Well, we are in the Summer of Galilee series. If you have been at all with us throughout this summer, we have been looking at little snippets of Jesus' ministry all around the Galilee region and learning about who our God is and how he operates and how we can apply that to our lives. And today we are going to be in the Gospel of Matthew. And we're going to look at the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And so you can turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 14. And we are going to be reading out of there, starting in verse 13. Uh, I don't have any fancy stories prepared for today or anything like that, because this is really an incredible story in and of itself. So we're just going to kind of go through the story and understand all of the different aspects of it. And then we're just going to look at some application at the end. So there's really just two parts of this. We're going to look at the account of the story. We're going to synthesize it. And then we're going to look at the application of the story. All right? Account and application. Nice and straightforward. Um, how many of you know that there are only two miracles that are recorded in all four Gospels. Only two miracles in all four Gospels. I would hope that you could guess what they both are, given what I'm preaching on. Uh, number one is feeding of the 5,000. It appears in all four Gospels. And the second I would also hope that you would get is, of course, the resurrection of our Savior and King. Those are the only two events in Jesus' ministry that are recorded in all four Gospels. And this is significant for us today because I want us to understand that the feeding of the 5,000 people in the Galilee region was, in a lot of ways, the pinnacle of Jesus' public ministry to the Jews. And yet, as we'll see, it really wasn't about, Jesus wasn't trying to make a point to the Jewish people at all. There are certainly aspects of that. Really, this miracle was all about teaching his disciples an important lesson about how we, as followers of Christ, need to serve him. So, as you turn to Matthew chapter 14, let me pray and then we'll dive in. Father God, we thank you so much for your truth. We thank you for your power. Thank you and praise you for your love and your faithfulness, Lord, that you are trustworthy and true. We thank you as well, Lord, for your abundant generosity and how you give far more than we ever could possibly think or imagine. Lord, we we come to you now seeking that you would open our hearts and our minds through your spirit, that you would lead us into your truth, that we would be challenged, that we would be encouraged, that we would go from here transformed, seeking to serve you, trusting in you, no matter what the circumstance may be. So Father, I yield myself to you now. I pray that the words of my mouth would be driven by your spirit to the glory of your name alone. In Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. Now, before we, we read, just want to give a little bit of background, right? So we are about two years, roughly, into Jesus' ministry by this time. He has been ministering all around the Galilee area. He's taken a trip down to Jerusalem and then made his way back uh, for the first Passover. And he has been healing people. He has been casting out demons. He chose 12 disciples. He trained them up and then gave them some on-the-job training and sent them out. All the while, John the Baptist has also been baptizing people and proclaiming that Christ was the one that they were waiting for. And John the Baptist was denouncing Herod Antipas. And by this time, Herod had had enough of John the Baptist's shenanigans and had very recently beheaded him. And so word of John the Baptist's death has just reached Jesus. In fact, it occurs a little bit earlier on in Matthew chapter 14. And the disciples have recently returned from going out and ministering in Jesus' name, healing the sick, casting out demons, teaching that the kingdom of God was at hand because Christ was here. So the disciples return John the Baptist has just been killed, and we see that Jesus, most likely saddened by the news of his cousin's death, although the text doesn't actually say what he was feeling, but saddened by this news and having his disciples rejoining him, it says that he wants to get away, he decides to go across the sea to find some rest and to be able to uh, spend time with his father. Perhaps find some comfort in the passing of John and to get necessary rejuvenation before he continues his ministry. And it's at this point that our text picks up in Matthew chapter 14, and we're just going to read the entire account, verses 13 through 21, all right? And then, like I said, we're going to synthesize it with the other three accounts in the Gospels. So we get all of the fun details, and then we'll dive into application. Okay, we got it? Good. Matthew 14, 13 to 21. Now, when Jesus heard this, this being the death of John the Baptist, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the, village, the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowd to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate 
and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. Now, as I previously mentioned, each of the Gospels has this account. And each of the Gospels, it's important as you read Scripture to understand why the text is being written, right? Every text in both the Old and the New Testament has a purpose for which it's written. And with the Gospels, each Gospel writer has a different purpose, so they highlight different aspects, different, different details in the different accounts. So as we synthesize the four accounts, we learn some interesting little details about this whole little episode here. Now, in the Gospel of Mark, which you can read that in chapter 6, it tells us that the people actually saw Jesus and the disciples get into the boat and head across the Sea to Galilee, and they hurried to meet them on the other side. Now, if you know anything about the Sea of Galilee, it is at a low point, right, that has the Jordan River running into it, and then the Jordan River running out of it. And it's kind of like the bottom of a bowl, because there are mountains that go up on, on most all of the sides, hills really, not mountains, around the Sea of Galilee. And so it's very easy to be on one of those hills and to look out at the sea, which is really just a lake. I mean, on a clear day, you can very easily see to the other side. And you can see a boat going across all the way. So it's not difficult to understand how the people would have seen Jesus getting into a boat and then rushing to the other side and getting there and following him as he's going, right? And so even though Jesus wanted to grieve, perhaps, in peace, and the disciples needed a rest after being sent out by Jesus to minister, the people wouldn't relent. And they continued to seek the miracles and signs of Jesus. And this really kind of echoes something that Jesus would say in his ministry. He would say that you will always have the poor, right? But you won't always have me. And we'll kind of get back to that thought a little bit later. Now, in the Gospel of John, which is also in chapter 6 of that Gospel, it tells us that this all happened in the springtime. This was in the springtime around Passover. So it was either in late March or early April, which is why there was grass on the ground. At most other points of the year, there would not have been any grass. But this was just after the rainy season, just around Passover, as I said. And it was just after barley harvest. Why is that significant? Well, as you will see, as we saw, what was the type of bread that they had on hand? Barley loaves. Why? Because they had just had the barley harvest. Now, barley was the food for the commoners, was the food for the poor, was not what the wealthy would eat. The wealthy would want to have wheat. But we see that this is right around Passover, and as if you understand Jewish culture, especially back then, right around Passover time was always heightened nationalism, a heightened sense of who they were as Jewish people and 
how they were being oppressed by the Romans. So there's this heightened sense of nationalism. They had just celebrated or were about to celebrate the deliverance out of Egypt by God and then God's provision of them in the wilderness. No coincidence that this is all happening around Passover when Jesus feeds all of these people in the wilderness. He's drawing a lot of parallels here with how God provided to his people in the Old Testament. Now, we know that the people followed him from Galilee. So these people were Jewish. In a couple of weeks, we're going to study the feeding of the 4,000, which was a separate account. And that happened in the Decapolis region, which was all Gentiles. So Jesus is ministering to the Jewish audience here of, it says, 5,000 men, along with women and children, which means that there were likely upwards of 15 to 20,000 people there. I mean, have any of you ever been to Stabler Arena when it was packed out? That would be about the num amount of people that were there seeking after Christ. It was a massive, massive throng of people. So we have all of these Jews there that are clamoring after Christ, yet when we break down the four accounts of the Gospels and this miracle, we see that the focus of Jesus really isn't on the people. He's not really trying to teach the people a deep lesson, at least in terms of how the Gospels are recording this. Now, like most other instances, the multitude is seeking Christ because of what he can do for them. Right? They see him as a miracle worker, and so they go after him solely because they want him to do more miracles. They want to be healed. They want to be um, provided for, etc., etc. And this isn't anything new. The people are selfish and only seeing Christ as that dispenser of things. They don't really have much understanding of what is actually going on with him. But despite this fact, Jesus still feeds them. He still feeds them, and this is one of the key lessons that he is teaching to his disciples, which is who he's really trying to reach, who he's really trying to engage, engage with, the lesson that he's really trying to get across to them. And so, according to Mark chapter 6 and Luke chapter 9, Jesus begin, first begins, as they arrive, to teach the people. So he begins to teach the people, and as he is teaching the people, then they start coming to him and asking them to heal. And he begins to heal them. He is moved with compassion, which in the Greek means literally that he is moved in his very bowels, in his depths. He has deep, deep compassion for these people who really didn't care much for him, just what they could do, what he could do for them. And so he heals the sick and he heals the weak, even though Jesus knows that all they're there is for the miracles, he still meets their selfish and self-indulgent motivations. 
But it is important that we see Jesus didn't just start doing these miracles right away. He sought to teach them first about the kingdom of God. Now, before Jesus even begins to heal, early on in the day, according to John 6, he recognizes the large crowd and he knows that the people are eventually going to need to eat. Now, this is a a detail that we don't get in the Gospel of Matthew, and it's actually a really important insight into what Jesus was doing here. So, I want you to get the picture here. Jesus is coming in with the disciples on the boat. They see the crowds waiting for them, and Jesus turns to his disciples, and in John 6, 5, he asks the disciples how they're going to feed them all. So he does this early on in the day. And this shows that while Jesus' desire is to minister to the people and show that like God the Father feeding the Jews in the wilderness, Jesus Christ, the Son, can do the same, really the primary goal of Christ is to teach the disciples a lesson here. So he asks the disciples early in the day how they're going to feed them and none of them have an answer. John 6, 6 tells us that Jesus asked them this question, and it tells us his motivation. He wanted to test them. It says he asked them this in order to test them. So he just wanted to see how they would respond when the burden, when the responsibility of feeding all of these people was placed on them. Philip, one of the disciples, recognized that eight months' worth of wages couldn't feed this whole group of people. 200 denarii wouldn't be enough to feed the crowd. While Andrew was able to rustle up five loaves and two fishes from a little boy. But he knew that wouldn't even feed the disciples, let alone 20,000 people. Now, after asking this question, Jesus goes about teaching and healing and lets the disciples think about this conundrum kind of all day long, where he is keeping them wondering, how are we going to feed all these people? And Jesus never gives them an answer. And then, in our account here in Matthew 14, it tells us that as it was growing late... And evening was coming, the disciples finally had an answer. And it's kind of like, you kind of get the sense that the disciples are almost waiting to see what Jesus would do. And then as the end of the day comes, they're like, oh, well, I guess we just need to send the people home to, or to the villages to buy food for themselves. We don't have anything. Now, culturally speaking, there were two... There, there were two evenings in, in Judaism, Jewish culture. The first evening was from 3 to 6, and which was the end of the Jewish day, and the second evening was from 6 to 9, which was really the beginning of the Jewish day, right? So they were both considered evening. The end of the day meant it was the end of the first evening, right before around 6 o'clock. So this is dinner time, right? And... As they turn to Christ and tell them, yeah, we're going to have to send them all back to the villages to buy food. We don't have anything. We don't really know what we're going to do here. Jesus very quickly responds to them, and he says, 
no, 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 no. You feed them. He says, you give them food. And in verse 16, if I were you, I would circle the words you give there. That in the Greek is a command. It's an imperative. He wasn't leaving any wiggle room here. He said, no, no, you feed them. Go. Now, you can imagine that as they were just commanded to go and feed these people, they were like, well, what are we going to do? How are we going to do this? And, of course, they objected, noting that they only had a little bit of food. They failed the test. Which, of course, Jesus knew they would, but he wanted them to see their failure so that they would learn from it. And what does Jesus tell them to do in verse 18 of our text? He says, bring it to me. Bring the food to me. Have the people sit down in the grass. And the other Gospels tell us that he sat them down in groups of 50 and 100. And in the Greek, here's another one you can circle. In the Greek, the word sit down, is act, it's the two words sit down is one Greek word. It actually means to recline. And it's important that we know that you would only recline at a banquet or a feast. You wouldn't just recline, especially the poorer people, they would not recline for a normal meal. So he basically tells them, hey, find a nice spot of grass. The grass is thick and beautiful after the rainy season. You guys just find a patch there with your little family group, sit down, and he's basically preparing them for a feast. Recline. And so Jesus takes the meager amount of food that they have, and as every Jewish father would, he gives thanks to God and blesses it, and then he breaks it and gives it to his disciples. And the Greek for gave them is really cool. It's in a continuous tense in Mark 6.41. It, it's in a tense that says he broke it and gave it to them and kept on giving it to them. So I want you to kind of imagine this in your mind, right? Jesus has these five little barley loaves, which are more like biscuits, and these two dried fish, and he starts breaking them and handing them and keeps breaking them and hands them and keeps breaking them and keeps handing them to the disciples. And they're there getting these handouts from Jesus as he just keeps on giving them the food that is multiplying in his hands as they watch him. And they begin to hand it out to all of the people. And all of the people begin to eat. All 20,000 or so people. And the text says what? They ate and they were satisfied. They didn't just get like one little biscuit to themselves. They got as much as they wanted. And in the ancient world, it was extremely rare to ever be satisfied with a meal you are almost always hungry, eating a little bit from meal to meal. Only the very wealthy ever were satisfied. And this Greek word is, means fully and completely content. 
that there is no wanting, no lack. It's the exact same Greek word used in the Beatitudes when Jesus says, Blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for you shall be satisfied. Now, Jesus didn't talk in Greek. That was how Matthew wrote it. But it's the same word used in both sections. All of this massive multitude of people were fully satisfied with Christ's provision. And there was even leftovers. And the disciples went around and picked them up, and lo and behold, look at that, we have 12 baskets, which are enough for one for each of the disciples, and, not coincidentally, also representative of the 12 tribes of Israel. So again, there's a lot of hearkening back to God's provision of the Jews in the wilderness as he provided for them manna. Now remember, this was around Passover, and the nationalism was running high, and so in the Gospel of John, we are told that the multitude at this point immediately came and sought to make Jesus king. They wanted to coronate him right there. They wanted to crown him right there. But it says that he withdrew back to the mountain by himself where he finally found some rest to be with his father. And kind of the postscript to this story, it's, I think it's funny. Uh, when Jesus made his way back, remember he sends the disciples ahead, they go ahead struggling against the storm, Jesus walks on water, teaches them yet another lesson in trust, they get to Capernaum, and they're there in Capernaum, and the crowd is waiting for him in Capernaum, and Anyone want to guess what the first thing they ask him to do is? Hey, uh, you think maybe you could give us some more food? You can go and read it. It's in John chapter 6. And that's where Jesus goes into the discussion where he is the bread of life. Right? And if anyone would follow me, they must eat his body and drink his blood. And they're like, oh my goodness, what does that mean? And they're like all confused and many go away. So Jesus met their need, taught them kingdom principles, met their felt needs by healing them and feeding them, sees them again, they come to him yet again, and he gives them some harder truth that causes them to begin to leave. So that's the story. You guys probably can go out and figure out everything from here, right? There's a ton of application points, and I, there's no possible way that I could break all of these down. So I'm just going to pick out a couple of the things that jumped out to me that Jesus was teaching his disciples. Now again, the point of this entire episode was to build the faith of his disciples who ultimately were going to be the men who drove the growth of the early church as they shared truth with men and women around them who could then do the same, so on and so forth, through the ages until we are all here today. It was because of the faith that was built into those, well, 11 men, and then one that came a little later, 
that we are able to stand here, sit here, and have what we have. They wrote the Gospels, and now we get to learn all about Jesus and how amazing he is. So, what lessons was Jesus teaching the disciples? Well, a couple of quick ones. First and foremost, Jesus taught them the importance of avoiding needless conflict. Well, wait, how, what, where was that in there at all? Well, remember at the very beginning, what had happened in the beginning of Matthew 14? John the Baptist got his head chopped off. And Herod, who was the son of Herod the Great, who tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby, Herod did not think very highly of Jesus. So as John the Baptist is beheaded, and everyone is saying, oh, well, hey, maybe this is John come again. If you read through the beginning of Matthew chapter 14, Herod isn't quite sure what to do with this Jesus guy, and so Jesus departs. He avoids any conflict with Herod by heading over into the eastern side of the Galilee, away from Herod's dwelling place. Now, you can probably make all of your applications from there in terms of avoiding needless conflict. But here's one that I just think is relevant and which drives me crazy. Um, <laughs> Christians, please avoid asinine social media conversations. You guys, we do it so regularly and we just fall right into the conflict. Let's be wiser than that and not get sucked into those types of things. Avoid needless conflict. Because I can tell you that unless, I mean, the Spirit of God can use whatever he wants. But I doubt there are many people who are ever going to be convinced of what you think in a Facebook thread or a Twitter battle or your whatever it is you want to post and be a part of. Avoid needless conflict. Avoid needless confrontation. That's what Jesus did. He didn't stand up to Herod after he cut off his cousin's head. He departed. He left and continued to go about his father's business, knowing that Herod would receive his just reward when the time came. Number one. Number two. He was teaching his disciples the importance of rest. Here's another one that we, in our culture, are just not very good at. We are not very good at rest. We're constantly busy, constantly going, not taking time to be still, to be rejuvenated, and to be re-energized as we continue on. In fact, most of us don't even get enough sleep. We skimp on our sleep because we got so much we have to do, or we have to work so many jobs to make ends meet. Sleep is a gift from our God. And it's a reminder to us, by the way, of how much we need Him. Because we can't function without regular sleep, 
just as we can't function without food and water, but all of those things remind us that we are finite, we are fragile, and apart from the grace of our God, we will perish. So he's teaching his disciples the importance of rest, especially after a season of heavy ministry. Remember, the disciples had been sent out and they said they were doing all kinds of amazing things. Remember when they came back and they were so excited? Hey, Jesus, we did all this stuff. And Jesus was like, yeah, that's great. Let's, let's go for a little sabbatical. If you are someone who is constantly going, 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 learn from Christ and learn to rest. Third, the importance Jesus was teaching his disciples the importance of compassion. Now, I personally feel like I am awful at this, <laughs> especially in the circumstance that Jesus was in, where he knew, he knew that all those people that were there, they didn't care a lick about him. And they didn't care a lick about actually helping themselves or bettering their situation. They were just looking for healing. They were looking for whatever Jesus would give them, they wanted. They wanted signs, they wanted miracles. Now, my flesh, my pride, my selfishness, it recoils at that. And it's like, well, you don't want to help yourself, I don't want to help you either. Get out of here. That's what my flesh wants to say, right? Jesus didn't. He saw them and he was moved deeply with compassion. And even though he knew the motivations of their hearts, he taught them truth, but he met their needs and he met it in abundance. Now, let's take that one step deeper. Praise God that he is a God of compassion who gives to those who don't deserve because that's every single one of us, right? If we go beyond just the, the level of food and health and we go to spiritual brokenness, spiritual need, that's me and that's you. And none of us deserved what Jesus gave us by dying on the cross pouring out his blood for us and giving us the opportunity to be saved by grace through faith in him. That is what our God does. He is a God of grace and mercy just as much as he is a God of holiness and righteous, righteousness and justice. The disciples needed to learn the importance of compassion because they were all ready to do what? Just, just, just let them go. You, you've healed them. Isn't that enough already? You've taught them. Isn't that good? They can go to the cities and buy their own food, which, by the way, they very well knew. <laughs> the disciples very well knew that there was not enough food in the cities to feed this whole multitude of people. They were near Bethsaida. It was a very small fishing village. Even if they had all the food in Bethsaida, it wouldn't have been enough to feed 20,000 people. 
So, so the disciples were basically just saying, let them go hungry. But Jesus doesn't do that. He teaches us the importance of compassion and meeting the needs that present themselves even when we think that people don't deserve it. Next one. Jesus taught his disciples the importance of obedience. The importance of obedience. See, it became clear to them, probably at the point when Jesus said, bring the food to me and have the people sit down. Probably became apparent at that point that Jesus was going to do something. Like, okay, he's, he's telling them to sit down. Well, they could have said, well, what is sitting them in grass in groups of 50 and 100 going to do? But they didn't. To their credit, let's give the disciples some credit here. They were obedient, even though they didn't have the foggiest notion of what Jesus was about to do. And that is how obedience works in the kingdom economy. Very, very rarely does our God say, hey, you know what, Matthew? Here's what I'm going to do here. So here are all the steps to get there. Now you go and do all those things. Usually, the way our God works, and I'm sure you have all experienced this, is, okay, Matthew, here. Let's just go and have them sit down. But what about after that? And then what, what happens, like, what's the plan? I kind of want to know what we're executing here. Maybe there's a better way we can do it. Are you sure 50 and 100 is the best? Maybe like 10 and 25? I don't know. Right? We, we begin to, well... I begin to start thinking about all of these things, right? Jesus just wants our obedience in the here and now. Doesn't want us to worry about what's coming in the future. Certainly doesn't want us to look beyond and, and behind, but to be present and to understand his way not lean on our own understanding, recognizing that he'll make the path straight, right? Proverbs 3, one step at a time. He was teaching the disciples all about obeying in the moment, regardless of how much you understand. But he wasn't just teaching them obedience, and he wasn't just teaching them about compassion and rest and avoiding conflict. Let's see how many other I got here. I got four more. All right. He was teaching them the importance, this is a quick one, the importance of order and organization. How many of you know that our God is a God of order? Our God is a God of, of clarity, not confusion. Our God is a God who brings order to chaos. That's a big part of what the whole creation account is, that our God is in control and he reigns over chaos. And in ministry, oftentimes it is very, very messy. Very, very messy. There's going to be 
stuff going on all over the place all the time that is going to not go according to plan and is going to frustrate you and is going to want to make you walk away and throw your hands up in the air. Say, what the heck? But that's okay. It's okay. We persevere through that and we find God's order in the midst of it. And so in the midst of chaos, the Lord will give us order. Praise God for those who have the gift of administration. I appreciate you so much. Because you are people who the Lord helps to bring order. And we need that. That's a very good thing. But, praise God that he also allows messes to continue. (laughs) Because we can't just organize and administrate everything. There's always a balance, right? As the Spirit moves, we follow in his order. Having organization is a good thing, and the disciples were taught that. He also teaches the disciples here the importance of generosity. The disciples had what? Five loaves and two fish. And how much did Jesus say that they needed to give to him? All of it. He said, yeah, bring it all here. He was calling the disciples to generous giving in the face of even their own hunger. But it wasn't just giving for the sake of giving. Because if we just give, 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 give all the time, well, then you really do have a crowd of people following you around looking for a handout. Because eventually Jesus did say, yeah, I'm the bread of life. You really, you need me, not just this food. So there's a point where you have discernment and say, yep, it's enough. But in the midst of all of that generosity, Jesus was also teaching them the importance of stewardship. How do we see that? Well, there was no waste. Jesus made sure that though the people ate till they were satisfied, that they stewarded the resources of the kingdom well, they collected all of the waste, so they, all of the leftovers, so nothing would go to waste. And this is how we should be with the resources that the Lord entrusts to us. We are to be generous, but we are to be discerning, good stewards, faithful with the little that we have been entrusted, so that by God's grace, if he deems it appropriate, he might entrust us with more to be stewards of and to give generously. Second to last also known as the penultimate. I like that word. just makes me feel smart. We have the importance of not giving in to cultural pressure. Now, how many of you know that the culture is constantly seeking to press us in and to conform us to its image? The lies that we are inundated with on a daily basis, the, the pressures to be like this person, to have and think this way. It's a constant, constant stream. And Jesus teaches his disciples here that 
just because everyone else is doing it doesn't make it right. Or, put differently, if everyone else is doing it, it's probably wrong. A wise man told me that one time. When all of the crowd came to make Jesus king, what did he do? He said, oh, no, 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 no. That is not the will of my father. I am not going to cave in to that cultural pressure, and he withdrew. And very regularly, we need to do the same thing in this culture. We need to see what it is pressing in and trying to overtake us by force and withdraw. Whatever that looks like, that might be mean withdrawing from a group of people, that might mean withdrawing from a particular activity, that might mean withdrawing from whatever it might be. Ask the Lord to show you that, and he will. But we cannot fall victim to the pressure and the lies of our conforming culture. By God's grace, we must learn the importance of overcoming and persevering through the culture, right? Jesus prayed for us, praise God that he did, in John 17, he said in two separate verses, Lord, they are going to be in the world, which we are, but help them to not be of the world, but to instead be of our kingdom. I'm putting that in my own words, but it's in there. You go read it, John 17, you'll see it. Right? And finally, the most important lesson is that we should always, always, always look to Christ first and foremost in all things and seek to bring people to Christ with every opportunity we have. What did the disciples do when they were faced very early in the day with Jesus' question, hey, how are you going to feed the people? They were like, yeah, we don't have the money for it, we don't have the food for it. And then throughout the day, as it wore on, they ultimately determined, yeah, there's no way that we can do this. How many of us, I know I do this, focus on our limitations and our inability to do something that we feel like we're called to do? Now, there might be situations where we've learned to trust in our God. Praise God for that. But I can guarantee you that through your faith journey, he will, in different seasons of your life, put you in situations where you will not be able to rely on yourself if you're a prideful, self-reliant individual, which I think I fall more into that category, or where you will be overcome with fear and think that you can't do it if you are more of a fearful individual who falls into uh, despair when a situation gets difficult. There's really only two ways you go. You're either full of selfishness and self-reliance or fear and discouragement and despair. One or the other, most of us. Which one are you? Right? And so... 
in those moments, either of those responses is the same thing as the disciples turning to Jesus and saying, yeah, we can't do that. We don't have enough money. We don't have enough food. Not going to happen. And Jesus says, yeah, come to me. Bring it to me. I'll show you how it's done. In fact, I'll do it for you. And all you need to do is just hand the bread out. And that's what he does in our lives. Now, it might not look the way that we think. In fact, it usually doesn't. Like, I'm sure the disciples, if they had their druthers, would have had Jesus call down manna from heaven so that they wouldn't have had to feed everybody themselves. But no, he put them to work. They had to work hard, passing out all the food. I imagine that they were the last ones to eat. doesn't say that. I'm just kind of using my imagination. But then, at the end of it, they each got their own basket full of food. When we go to Christ first and foremost, and we, through humility, which is the answer, by the way, to both fear and pride, the answer is humility, right? And as we trust him and not ourselves, as we don't fall into the fear of what may happen or what could happen, but instead just keep looking to Jesus, as we do that, we will see God move in mighty ways. And we will learn to trust him even more the next time something happens. Which is why the next episode right after that was Jesus walking on water in the midst of a storm. He wanted to show them how they could trust him for their needs. And then he showed them that, look, you can trust me even when you think your boat is going to capsize and you're going to drown. We can always go to our God. Amen? Let's pray.